It's a history of football we knows about And we want to expand what we know We'll become such intelligent gentry With every kick-to-kick show Beginning in the time 1870s Right through to the modern day Tune in for Timmy Coops and the Kazman To hear what they all have to say They shall not grow old As we that are left grow old Age shall not weary them Nor the years condemn At the going down of the sun And in the morning We will remember them Welcome to the third episode of the Kick to Kick World War Two special. Yeah, we've gone through a lot so far, so we have, and we've got um, plenty more to come. We do have plenty more to come. Um, that was uh, quite nice hearing the Ode to the Fallen there as well to, to yeah. kick off the episode. Um, really nice when they do that on Anzac Day as well. Oh, such a special moment. Well, yeah, at all the games. Um, so we're going to cover a few things in today's episode. We're going to cover something that I guess isn't talked about a lot with Anzac Day is the role of umpires in World War II, uh, Aboriginal players and servicemen, uh, and women as well, what, what women were doing back home and how they were using football to try and raise money. Bless them all right, so let's uh, let's actually go to, to Big Red, who's going to take us around the grounds and tell us a little bit about what the women were doing on the home front to raise some money. Fantastic. Bless all the corporals and their thinking sons, cause we're safe. With women taking over in many areas of the workforce, they also played a role in playing benefit matches around the country to raise money for the war effort. This included in the goldfields, where Kalgoorlie versus Cool Gardy, uh, with Kalgoorlie dominating in a 43 to 9 win. Then, four years later, they played another fundraiser with 1,500 spectators and raising 55 pounds three shillings. In Tasmania, radio stations 7EX played 7LA, raising money for the Red Cross with an incredible ending. 7EX kicked eight goals with their last one in the closing minutes to win by a point. Zero goals eight to versus one goal one. So a low scoring but successful game. D Downs was named best on ground and was chaired off the ground in that game. In Broken Hill, two women's teams calling themselves the Spitfires and the Bombers played with the Spitfires winning an game in uh, with eight goals 856 versus four goals 529 in a game that raised 32 pounds 14 shillings. Uh, Kennedy uh, won the Horry Edwards Trophy for best on ground and Mrs Young was awarded a trophy for the best married player. In Victoria, a game was played in Mort Lake near Warrnambool with teams representing the Defence Forces. The two teams were married ladies versus single ladies. Uh, the game was described as a ding-song contest with the, the singles winning by a point. How ironic. In Ascot Vale, the ladies played a Fags for the Fighters fundraiser, the teams being the Inspection Branch and the production of the aircraft Annex. Gloria Newton, a player, called for her, called that her workmates had been uh, training during their lunch breaks for weeks. One team uh, wore black and red, the other wore purple and gold, and the production team won and raised £37.14. shillings. In South Australia in 1944, a munition team played against 
the Actal Cotton Girls, with more than 1,000 people watching the munitions uh, win by a goal. Uh, in Perth, women's teams represented the Swan Districts and East Fremantle and raised more than £175. Fantastic effort by the ladies there. In June 1947, South Melbourne Football Club advertised for women who'd be keen to play a game at the Swans Lake Oval headquarters the following month. As an added benefit, their efforts, their efforts would raise money for the Red Cross Food for Britain appeal that was delivering desperately needed resources for a ravaged England, which was still recovering from World War II. The Swans were inundated with phone calls and letters from hundreds of women. To gain maximum exposure, South Melbourne scheduled the event for a Sunday, July the 6th, 1947, and enlisted three other clubs, St Kilda, Carlton and Footscray, each of which, along with the Swans, would be represented by a women's team. The organisers were also overwhelmed by the community response to the event, which attracted a tremendous estimated crowd of 25,000 people. As for the women's footy, the Swans gained bragging rights over their lakeside rival St Kilda in the first game with a 7-4-46 to 1-1-7 victory, which might have led some to suspect the home team had saved the cream of the playing talent for itself. Footscray also won easily against Carlton, 2-6-18 to nil, to advance to the final against South Melbourne. The playoff, which the players said was played at a surprisingly high standard given the limited preparation, ended in a draw, 16 apiece. All in attendance deserved uh, congratulations given they added to the Food for Britain appeal coffers by £650, which in today's money is about $45,000. Um, we do have a link attached to AFL News about this day. Uh, and now, Charlie, you're going to tell us a little bit about uh, some Aboriginal players who served in World War Two. Yeah. Before I start, I'd like to take this opportunity to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land upon which I am recording this from, the Bunurung people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Um, it is such an important thing to be able to talk about uh, First Nations people and the role that they played um, in all the wars that Australia has fought in from the, from the Boer War up until now. Um, so in, in general, there was quite a lot going on at this time, obviously, uh, up until 1967, um, our First Nations people weren't recognised as citizens and therefore it was actually illegal for them to enlist. So they often had to lie about their heritage, uh, which means we have a somewhat uh, fuzzy history on who served and, and where they were from and, and these things are still coming out now. Um, there's a lot of things that unfortunately I'm unable to talk about and I want to say up front that I am no, by no means an expert in this area so uh, it is something that I am I'm passionate about but, uh, and I'm learning more and more about as time goes. Um, there were three people in particular that I wanted to mention, three that I could get quite a bit of information about or a little bit of information about. The first one being Doug Nichols. Now, um, a very famous name. Uh, he had retired before World War II. He retired uh, in 38, but he did have a bit to do um, 
during World War II. Uh, he was a very adept boomerang thrower and he actually taught those skills to some members of the United States military while they were here in Australia. Um, there is actually a photograph depicting this in the Australian War Memorial Archives. Um, through this time, he also organised and captained Aboriginal teams in football matches, which were used for patriotic fundraisers during the war, uh, many of which were played against Northcote. Uh, another man to mention is Cyril Mann, who uh, played for Carlton as full forward and f who played 42 games. Um, he was of Aboriginal heritage, and as I was mentioning before, sometimes these things don't come out for a while. It wasn't, wasn't actually revealed until 2013 when the Carlton historian Tony de Bolfo tracked down his surviving daughter, Karen. Uh, she was able to confirm that Cyril was the grandson of Will William uh, Bill Cooper, who was a Yorta Yorta man and a highly respected Indigenous leader and activist, and the nephew of Lynch Cooper, who won the 1928 stall gift. Uh, Cyril joined the 2nd 23rd Battalion on the way to Egypt in 1942, uh, although he found trouble there and was sent home just five months later. Uh, unfortunately, we weren't able to find out too many details, but when he arrived back in Australia, he was charged with misconduct and court-martialed in 44, which resulted in an 18-month sentence. The other player to mention is Norm MacDonald. He played for Essendon. Uh, he was Essendon's very first Indigenous player in the league and paved the way for many that have come after him. Uh, he actually lied about his age and enlisted in 1942, age 16. Uh, he arrived in Darwin just after the Japanese had bombed it. He graduated from a gunner to a parachutist and he actually played for the Geelong RAAF team as well. Uh, Norm was a Gundadmara man from Western Victoria and debuted for the Bombers in 47. He went on to play 128 games and uh, he kicked three goals over six seasons as a halfback flanker. He was renowned for his pace, his strong marking and his clutch performances and he won actually won Essendon's Best and Fairest in 51 and was a member of their back-to-back -back premierships in 49 and 50. Uh, he was nominated to the Victorian Aboriginal Honour Roll in 2018, which is only the latest milestone in his legacy. He's ranked number 33 in the Champions of F Essendon list and named as halfback flanker in the Aboriginal Team of the Century in 2005. Um, he was an accomplished boxer and a sprinter, and he, he actually came second in, uh, to his teammate Lance Mann in the 52-stall gift. He was a pioneer in the inclusion of Indigenous people to Australian rules and he was recognised for his contribution to his community for his fight against oppression and racism. Uh, so those are just three people that we wanted to highlight but obviously because of uh, the often hidden history we don't know whether this is the full list uh, but I just wanted to take this opportunity to honour these men in forging the path um, and acknowledge the many others who fought for our country without the recognition that they so deserved at the time. Now, Kazman, let's switch over to you, the umpire expert on our show, and tell us about some of the umpires who were involved in uh, serving. Umpires. 
Amongst the first to volunteer and see action was Lieutenant Donald Quartermain. Quartermain was a VFL umpire who saw much country football and was aspiring to make it the seniors at the outbreak of war. He joined the second AIF in June 1940 and sailed to the Middle East. He was captured in Greece and transported by a ship and then cattle truck to a POW camp somewhere in northern Germany. Over the next four years, as POW number 3,500, he was moved from one camp to another. Another one, Percy Moore, moved from India to Egypt and finally to the to southwest Pacific. While stationed in an unknown destination, the call went out for a football umpire. Moore wrote, I offered my services and they were gladly accepted. The match was between South Australia and Victorian, and a Victorian side. The day for the match arrived and I strolled to the ground. One of the South Australian chaps came over and asked me if we were playing league or union rules. <laughs> I was a bit puzzled and I'd never heard of union rules. I had a look around and discovered the ground was laid out for rugby. I tried to back out, but they would have none of it. After they'd explained the main rules, I decided to give it a go. I lasted about 15 minutes and apart from almost being knocked over a couple of times, I did nothing at all. I walked off the ground as the game seemed to be proceeding adequately without an umpire. It transpired that Moore had gone to the wrong ground. The Australian football match had been postponed due to his absence and was played the next day. Over to Jack McMurray Jr. had a similar experience. It was 1941 when McMurray was appointed to his first senior VFL match round for Hawthorne versus Geelong at Glenford Oval. He completed the season with a total of 12 matches and in 1942 missed only one for the f of the first 15 rounds before being granted a leave of absence. He joined the AIF on 30th November and left Melbourne and umpiring to serve with the Australian Army and spent much of the next three years in New South Wales and New Guinea. He managed to keep his hand in umpiring while there, um, umpiring many games well in the army and even made it back to Melbourne for a cameo appearance at Vic Park in 1944. Okay, settle in. Here is something that could be very disturbing. So no experience in the Second World War is more disturbing than that of Phil Stone and his comrades. Stone joined the VFL as a boundary umpire in 1947 and amassed 194 matches in the next 13 seasons. But it was not until the 1990s he was able to speak about his wartime experiences. The Australian, British and, and United States governments were concerned about the effects of mustard gas that could be used either by or against their troops. They wanted to know how the gas could best be used in the jungle and what its effects were on the troops. To this end, they asked for volunteers without informing them of the details of the program. Stone recalls, at Prospine in Queensland... Uh, I was to I was a volunteer in the first Australian field um, as a gas guinea pig for mustard gas and lewisite gas in their experimental trials. As it was highly classified information for 30 years, we were not allowed to speak of it. Those servicemen who volunteered were told they were required for top secret work. They were asked to sign a secrecy to sign secrecy agreements. Over a period of time, approximately a thousand men, usually wearing minimal protection, were either exposed to mustard gas in a large stainless steel chamber or exposed to gas mortar shells being fired into open paddocks. 
They were exposed by tramping through heavy jungle, bombed with mustard gas. Tests were also carried out to see how long it would take for a soldier involved in arduous assault course to become unfit for duty when exposed to mustard gas. Mustard gas causes several burns and is particularly effective on moist skin, meaning areas such as the neck, groin, armpits were especially susceptible. Stone has discernible burns to this day. And... 51 umpires served and a further 91 soldiers went on to become umpires in the future. Others we know include Lieutenant William Blackburn, Sergeant Alan Coward, Private Alan Eddy, Private Francis Matson, Staff Sergeant Reginald Trelaw. Thank you very much. You set an example that has made the whole world look all right, so let's move on to talk a bit about um, medal. So, players who receive medals. Yeah, um, there's, yeah. There's some players who do some pretty incredible things. We just want to go go through that quite, you know, not quickly. We want to go through that. So. Um, Military Cross was received by Richard Eason, who played for Footscray in Essendon, um, awarded this for outstanding courage and coolness in New Guinea in 1945, when he went within 50 metres of the enemy to bring artillery fire to bear. He was involved in a 12-hour grenade fight where 11 of his escort party were killed. Oh, wow. Charlie, do you want to go next? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's a, a couple of people who distinct, uh, received the, uh, dis the DSO or the Distinguished Service Order. One of them was um, Douglas Bausch from, um, from Richmond. His nickname was Alibaba. Um, he led a company of 600 men uh, constructing airfields throughout the South Pacific. Uh, so very important strategically for for the allies in that area to make sure that they could uh, get air cover to the all the troops that were on all those islands. Um, Herb Fennell for Carlton also won the Distinguished Service Order. Uh, he was awarded it for efficient and competent leadership training and training ambulance uh, unit to Tobruk, Derna and Benghazi in 1941. Uh, he was later awarded a CBE in uh, 1943 for unsparing efforts and splendid example in the Middle East in saving the life of a wounded man under heavy machine gunfire. Um, oh. There's also uh, someone here who won the Companion of the Order of the Bath. Uh, his name was um, Thomas Hurley, who played for university. Oh. Um, so way back. And surprise, surprise, he was a surgeon. He was a, he was a well-educated man. Um, so he was a surgeon with the RAAF, and he was 52 at the time. Wow! He recommended the formation of the RAAF nursing service, establishing hospitals in Victoria, New South Wales, and New South Wales, and set up rehab centres for aircrew to overcome major disabilities. Um, his medical evacuation transport units moved many casualties in the Southwest Pacific. So yeah, what a what a legacy to have. Incredible. Intelligent man. Was? Uh, the, the Distinguished Flying Cross was awarded to the following three men. Uh, Collingwood's Hugh Coventry was a member of the RAAF, 243rd Squadron, and he was awarded the DFC, 
uh, for skill and fortitude in operations against the enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, South Thomas Hall was part of the 175th Squadron and he was awarded the DFC for displaying a marked degree of courage and initiative. And then my favourite, Essendon's Raymond Watts, um, was, was awarded this after his plane was struck during a night attack over Hanover in Germany. He was the navigator and in spite of the nose of the plane being torn off, he managed to guide the pilot back to base safely. Terrifying scenes. Wow. Oh, under- yeah, Me I can either. imagine that. He must have remained so cool, calm and collected. Yeah. Um, now, we, we do have Peter Chitty who won the British Empire Medal, but we, uh, we've we dedicated mm-hmm. the whole episode to talking about him and the uh, Changi Brownlow. So uh, you can hear that in our second episode. We've also got Fred Godding of Richmond, who won the member of the British Empire, part of One Australia Brigade Company, AASC, given the MBE for his sound organisational ability in Papua New Guinea uh, at Finchafen and Medane. Yes, first off, Thomas Calder of South Melbourne was in the RWF for five years, a gunnery leader in the 529th Squadron in the USAAF, was awarded the US Air Medal by the President um, Theodore Roosevelt for his participation in an airstrike on Kamiri in Indonesia 1944. And I believe he also got the Order of Australia Medal as well for that. Aha, it was for that. Okay, fantastic. Oh, he got two he got two medals. Okay, excellent. So James Nash uh, was ordered the DFM Distinguished Flying Medal. Uh, James Nash played for Hawthorne. A pilot officer with the number six squadron. On the day of his death, he was acting as a wireless operator. Now, this, listen to this story. Uh, in a plane that was de- that developed engine trouble. So it made an emergency sea landing in, did I say this right, Jackano? Yes. Jackano Bay region. He stayed at his post, giving the command station updates, saving the life lives of his five crewmates but ultimately losing his own he was posthumously posthumously awarded the dfm for gallantry and devotion to duty during flying operations so just some of the players who uh did some outstanding work for our country um but there are some players who deserve going into a little bit more um some of those players who passed away Jack Keddy is one I wanted to talk about very quickly. He was an Essendon player and his story is actually pretty tragic. Um, He survived the whole war and hours after the Japanese surrender, he and his brother and two mates, they decided to hijack a boat and they went to join the celebratory fireworks. They loaded the boat with short fuse dynamite and this caused the boat to flip and uh, Keddy unfortunately drowned. Heartbreaking. And the other one is Bill Cosgrove. So after playing three senior games in 1940 at Richmond, he spent he had spent three years for Richmond before joining the RAAF and flew both bombers and fighters in World War II. Um, he gained the rank of flight sergeant flying in excess of 50 missions over Libya, Burma, Iraq, Sumatra, Java, and New Guinea. Always ensured that he had the Tiger emblem and Jack Dyer's name painted on the sides of his cockpit for good luck. Uh, in 1942, he actually escaped from Java with 12 other men in a 24-foot boat to avoid capture by the Japanese. And amazingly, after 44 days and 1,500 miles, they were packed up at uh, picked up at Fraser Inlet 
near Carnarvon, Western Australia. But then he died on the 11th of August, 1943, when his bow fighter bomber was shot oh. down. Yeah. Very sad. sad. Mm, very. Charlie, you want to talk about Bluey Truscott? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we've, we've spoken a bit about uh, Bluey in uh, 1942 episode as well, when um, he came back at the beginning of the year and, and played his final game, his 50th game for Melbourne and managed to kick a goal. Uh, already before that, he was a, a huge hero to not only Melbourne supporters, but also uh, to general to the general public because he was because of his flying prowess it was uh, interesting to note that he almost actually uh struck he almost didn't make it into the rwaf he struggled to pass his flying course uh but he became back as one of uh, australia's most famous flying aces and uh won the distinguished flying cross and bar he was credited with destroying uh, 15 enemy aircraft along with um, three other probable destroyers and damaging three others. Um, so he, he forged that reputation flying Spitfire, Spitfires in Britain uh, where he terrorised the Germans. Mm. Um, so as we, as we heard, you know, he came back after that and played in his last game. But unfortunately, as, we, as I just said, it was his last game. Uh, he was killed during a RAAF training exercise with the US Navy on the 28th of mm. March, 1943, off Exmouth in Western Australia. Um, the conditions of the day were extremely unusual. The water was uh, a mirror-like, which created a false horizon. Um, the Australian echelon prepared for a beam attack at what Loudon thought would height well over 200 feet, but due to weather conditions and distance from, from the Catalina, Loudon and Truscott weren't able to discern that the Catalina was actually in a slow descent, preparing to land on the water. Uh, with the sun shining in their eyes, it wasn't until 800 uh, yards prior to contact that Loudon realised their true altitude, uh, in which point he reared Truscott, but it was too late, unfortunately, and Truscott's keyhole clipped the water at a flat angle and he immediately pulled up the aircraft, but it stalled at 200 feet and fell into the sea, uh, killing Truscott instantly. Um, his body was recovered and he was buried with military honours at Karakata Cemetery in Perth. Mm. Uh, so... Even though he only played uh, 50 games for Melbourne, he played in two premierships and uh, was highly regarded by Checker Hughes, by his cap, by his captains, uh, by the rest of the playing, by the rest of the playing group, and um, yeah, and obviously a, a huge war hero. Jeez Louise! Yeah, so sad. Moz, I've got another very sad one. Well, they're all very sad. Um, this one also may be a bit confronting, so just a warning in case anyone's listening and they don't like that sort of information. Um, so Harold Ball was a dual premiership player for Melbourne. He served in the field ambulance of the Army Medical Corps, Australian Army Medical Corps. His unit moved to Port Dixon, which is about an hour from Kuala Lumpur, where they were trained in transporting the sick and the wounded. During his time at Port Dixon, he took part in several football matches. When the Japanese began their assault on Singapore, Ball's unit was overwhelmed with the task of evacuating the many wounded. On the afternoon of the 9th of February, 1942, all personnel were ordered to evacuate to Hill 80. Ball, along with the others, all traveling in the same vehicle, never reached Hill 80 and were reported missing. 
On the 9th of May 1942, three months later, a working party of Australian prisoners of war sent out to cut feed for the Japanese horses found the bodies of four men. They had all been tortured by the Japanese before they were executed. One of the bodies had its wrists tightly bound with wire. The identity discs on the body identified the soldier as Harold Ball. Mm. Tragic. That is yeah. horrible way to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that really brings it home, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, now, Kaz, you're going to talk a little bit about Barassi. Kaz, what I sent you is a something that was written by the Coterie of Melbourne Football Club following Barassi's uh, death. Thank you, Tim. Um, and it goes a bit like this. So... Um, from 1941 reference to Barassi. Let it be known that the unsigned members of the Melbourne Football Club Coterie desire to place a record on record their appreciation of the sterling worth on and off the field of your late husband, Ron, who died of wounds at Tobruk in North Africa on the 31st of July, 1941. While serving his country, while serving his country, his passing has been a great grief to his fellow players in the club to officials to the coterie and to onlookers who enjoyed his brilliant and fair play which uh, to a considerable degree helped our club to win two successive premierships that's that's really nice um, thing to uh, send to the families well the thing that I remember the most is my news that my father had been killed he was killed in Tobruk Unfortunately, he was the first uh, VFL footballer killed in the war. My mother was crying and I guess the fact that she was crying hurt me more than anything else. Mm. I think we should feel hurt when to think that people have been killed defending you. War is shocking tearful, awful waste of people's efforts and lives. When they die, the shock comes to the mothers and fathers and husbands and wives. Uh, I mean, there's nothing really you can do, but at Mm. least they put it down there. Yeah, and, and that would have everlasting effects on the Melbourne Football Club as well, which we might get to later on um moz you were going to talk about dick peary as well i've got a letter here from dick digger lieutenant richard peary he who sat down to write a letter to his family my dearest mother dad and boys well my dears the pressure is on now and as soon as the weather improves we sail for the greatest event in the history of the world by the time you receive this you will surely have heard some of the bare details This is the greatest armada that ever was formed. A colossal feat of organization, the product of years of planning and hard work. Yesterday morning, our chaplain came aboard and with the soldiers, Canadians, we received general absolution. If anything happens, it it is just the will of the Sacred Heart. I will leave this and hope and trust in God that that I will conclude in a few days. He would die as his boat was hit by an 88mm scouting locations as the D-Day forces advanced on Normandy. Yeah, that's incredible. That a beautiful letter. I guess players were involved 
in that, you know, as, as you said, one of the greatest events in the history mm. of the world. Mm. Um, and out of these tragedies, I think some clubs have done some really good things to kind of hold the legacy of these players, and Melbourne probably do it the best. Charlie? How so, Tim? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, if, you th- if you look at the way our, our best and fairest runs, um, first, second, and third are all named after uh, men who, who died in, in the Second World War and were players around this time. And um, also there's another one. So uh, the winner of the club uh, championship, so first in our best Ferris, which is actually donated by Hughes as well, is named the Keith Bluey Trust Memorial Trophy after after Bluey, who I, we spoke about yep. before. Um, second is named after Sid Anderson, um, who uh, played only three seasons for Melbourne. Those three seasons were 39, 40, 41. They played three seasons, hmm. three premierships. And he died um, flying in Wewak in Papua New Guinea uh, in 44. Uh, the third place is the Ron Brassy Senior Memorial Trophy. And then the Harold Ball Memorial Trophy, who uh, I was just mentioned, is, is presented to the player who is deemed to be the best young talent. So that's four people um, who, they, who the club has recognised from this time to continue uh, that lasting legacy and tradition. Yeah, that's and that's mm. so great that there's four players they honour with that. Um, Richmond do a similar thing. They've got um, an award called the Bill Crosgrove Harry Jenkins Memorial Trophy, which is given to the best first-year player each season. In October 26th of 1943, the widow of Bill Cosgrove thanked the club for naming the trophy, which was donated by President Harry Dyke. Um, so, and that's still, it's been handed out ever since. Mm. So lovely. That's fantastic. Oh, fantastic. Uh, yeah, so Geelong also has done a few things over the years. They, their second place of their BNF is named after Jim Knight, who played for Geelong and Carlton. After he played for Carlton after Geelong sat out the 42 and 43 seasons. He was held in such high esteem at Carlton that they donated money towards the trophy instigated from the Knight family. That's incredible that they've done that as well. Isn't that? Yeah. So lovely. I can't imagine, like Carlton, the team who supported the <laughs> rocks at everyone. That's yeah. such a nice gesture. And Clyde Helmer was killed near Leigh. The Helmer Trophy is awarded to the best and fairest at Marupna Football Club, which is near Shepparton. Kaz? So, Tim, the T, everybody, the TM Ferguson Trophy, um, awarded for premiership matches between Hawthorne and Melbourne from 1953 to the late 60s. So, the trophy was donated by Sandy Ferguson, who was a Hawthorne president from 53 to 67 whose father, Tom, played nine games for Melbourne uh, between 42 and 43 and um, 38 games for Hawthorne between 46 and 48. Similar to the Lakeside pennant, just one of those trophies that is played for between two players. And I'm not sure what happened to it. That's right. I, I think um, they, they have meaning and um, we still value them for what they were then. But, you know, I, I suppose there's... Um, I suppose they may, maybe just... Uh, Anyway, the re- it's stopped now, but the reason for it hasn't diminished, right? So um, Tom was a leading aircraft man in the during the war. So that's Sandy Ferguson's father, Tom, yeah, who served as an aircraft man. 
Great. Um, and I found a little anecdote here that in 1947, Collingwood was sent a war-stained miniature flag commemorating their 1935 premiership. Um, it had a letter on it which read, I found this on top of a dead dead Jap on the island of Teop off Bougainville, New Guinea. I thought you might care to have it. I have quite often wondered how the Jap got it. Yours truly, AJ Anderson. And there was actually a bullet hole through uh, Jock McHale's name on the flag. And it has been put on display. I'm not sure if it's still there. Mm, yeah. Um, now, now, I also came across an interesting article on the AFL website, um, which was a suggestion that when Richmond and Melbourne, who play their Anzac Day Eve match, why don't they play for the Checker Hughes Trophy? Ah. Wonderful yeah. suggestion. Yeah, Checker so, Hughes being a war hero, uh, being a premiership a coach at both teams. That's a great idea. Oh, he wouldn't want his name up there in the spotlight, though. He's a team man. Hmm. Um, maybe let's uh, let's get the ball rolling on that. Um, now, next thing I wanted to quickly talk about was <laughs> Kokoda. The advance of Australian forces over ground just evacuated by the Japanese when Kokoda was recaptured and the enemy driven out. Um, the Kokoda Trail, I guess it's seen as one of those rites of passage for some people. And uh, it's one of those things some teams do for team building. So Brisbane, Sydney and Hawthorne have all sent teams there to go and do some team building, some, um, you know, to try and get a feel for what the diggers went through, mm. but also build that mateship mm. that I guess was part of that. This is a story recounted by... Uh, Luke Hodge when he was uh, quite I guess newish at Hawthorne when Hawthorne decided to go and trek the Kokoda Trail um, he states that when they went there they were put through all sorts of group challenges like carrying a telegraph pole or a stretcher full of sandbags and each of them had to carry not only their 20 kilo pack but also a 20 kilo sandbag along the 96 kilometer track um, one of the players who was uh, named Harry Miller was quite small and slight and was quite struggling um, they're on this narrow slippery track climbing close to half a meter with each step and Harry would have fallen over backwards if Trent Crowe hadn't been there uh, with the hand on his backpack pushing him on um, when it looked like Harry couldn't take another step Crody took Harry's bag sandbag and threw it over his shoulder meaning Trent Crowe had to carry 60 kilos uh, but reducing Harry's load to 20 kilos uh, Luke Hodge then says he looked across and saw Clarko smiling um, because they were starting to get it and the whole reason clubs go to Kokoda is to experience I guess what it was like for some of the soldiers but also to build that team sh team uh, for that team bonding and you can really see in that anecdote by Luke Hodge that um, that mateship that looking after each other is is definitely part of it and I guess we can argue that Hawthorne that paid dividends for Hawthorne going on to then win multiple premierships because of that teammate that bond that resilience they built and possibly we could trace that back to Kokoda um, and also interesting to note that Hawthorne had a Kokoda-inspired jumper uh, for a match with Sydney in 2010, which was basically a hawk on a bit of a camouflage background. Uh, you can check it out on the Footy Jumpers website if you would like. Fantastic. And Charlie, you actually, you went to Kokoda, didn't you? I Yes, I did. It was a few years ago now. Um, uh, when was it? 2003. I did... Um, not the entire thing. Unfortunately, we didn't have time for the whole thing, which um, was a real shame. But uh, we did five days of the Kokoda Trail. So we we got we flew in from Port Moresby on a light plane to a little town called Afoggy. 
um, which people, if people who know um, know the track, the track, uh, it's, uh, it's probably one of the most harrowing experiences flying into a uh, a landing strip that was about two hundred meters long and just a grass hill, and basically it was on like a forty five degree oh. angle. It was unbelievable. Um, but then from from there, walking the rest of the way from a foggy to Kokoda and stopping in all these villages and having um, a service at um, um, the, the Australian the memorial that is there uh, for the Australians, um, which you may have seen photos of, which has the four black marble pillars um, with courage, mateship, uh, endurance, and sacrifice. Yeah. Um, it was an extremely uh, moving experience to walk the entire thing and, and we were lucky enough to have people with us who were extremely well educated in, in the things that had happened along the track and so we'd stop, you know, every for every break and hear stories about what had happened at that particular point on the Kokoda Trail and, and uh, stories about the people who'd won Victoria Crosses or distinguished themselves in battle along that that point and um it just puts you in awe of uh of those of those soldiers because you know walking it with a pack on your back um you know nothing you know not having to worry about anything else was hard enough humidity is about a hundred percent it's muddy it's slippery it's the altitude, you know, the altitude's high. It's, you can, you can barely see two meters either side of you. So just for those guys, you, you know, you wouldn't even think, you'd never know there could be enemy soldiers standing, mm. you know, you could have touched them and you wouldn't have known yeah. they were there. Um, it's, it's, it just puts you, and um, we spoke about this with um, with the author of the Changi Brown, though, because he was talking about the fact that he went and had a look at the Burma Railway, um, being in there and 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 uh, hearing those stories. You know, hearing them wherever you are is amazing, but being there and and hearing them and really putting just puts a whole other perspective on it. And um, yeah, it was a it, it's it's a phenomenal thing that I feel very lucky to have, to have been able to do. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. Um, now let's cross to Murph and hear about his Anzac Day experience in winning uh, a Anzac medal. So it was in 2016, um, and we came up against the top side. So we came up against um, Bingley. So I was playing for Bentley Football Club at the time, and uh, we came up against Bingley, who was top of the ladder. And had been the dominant side really for the last four years. Yep. Um, and yeah, it was early in the season, so it was around. I feel like it was a, around the Queen's birthday time before. It's around around eight or so. Um, and it was the first time we played in that season, obviously. And we played them at home. And so commemorative. You yeah, had a special commemorative strip. Yeah, special commemorative strip for the day. So there was a bit of bit of hype around it. So it was a. It was really um, the the league made it. Uh, a pretty big deal of it. So every all the um, all the ten teams in the comp, they all had a, a different strip for the the round. The SFL and, um, that was an SFL initiative. Yeah, SFL initiative. Yeah, so it was great. It, it, you, actually, you just felt like it was. Um, you felt like um, you're an Essendon or Collingwood player. Like it felt like that sort of thing. You know, you had the um, we had the um, minute silence for the last post play before the game, and um, all all the things you'd expect. You know, for the MCG. 
Um, anyway, yeah, it was just a. I remember it was a, an overcast day. It rained for half the game. It was a shocking day for footy. <laughs> um, and I played at centre half back on on um, a player uh, by the name of Stu Stu Cleave. He was um, their their ruckman and sort of part time sort of centre half forward. And yep. Um, he played VFL footy for Sandringham Zebra, so I, was, I knew I was going to be in for a big day. Um, anyway, I kept Tim Dolis and, and uh, managed to set up. You know, I had probably three or four scoring assists from half from half back myself. Oh, the general. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it was. It was, um, it was back. You know, when I was flying across packs and knocking blokes over, and the old golden, the old golden fist sort of days. Nice. Um, and. Um, both teams, at the end of the game, both teams uh, coaches. So it was a bit different to the Anzac medal as it stands at the MCG, um, where we had two Anzac medals awarded. Yeah. Uh, and each coach uh, awarded the opposing team, uh, opposing team's best player. So um, I was so the, the Dingley coach uh, deemed me the best player for us for the day, and um, our coach would have given the award to someone else whose name, you know, he wasn't important. Um and was it presented by anyone yeah. special? It was presented by a member of the RSL, the local Bentley RSL. Fantastic. Um, and he was he was dressed in his um, uh, what do you his commemorative sort of um, suit? I'm not sure what the name of that is. Um, uniform. His uniform. Yeah, his, his uniform is probably the right word. Um, and he presented the, the award to both of both players. Um, and there was a photo taken, which I never got to see. So I'm not sure if it was published anywhere or made it to any local newspaper. But um, yeah, it was, I, it's still a very fond memory because it was. I, I recall it was the same year. Um, the team that we cause we beat them that day, so we won. Yeah, uh, we won. We won. I kept their best player to do you know to nothing. Um, won the game in a sloggy, you know, rainy sort of day. Um, that was probably the highlight of the year because then we played them in the grand final and lost by 100 points. Nice, and you still got that medal? Oh, yeah, the medal, yeah. So it it um, sits uh, proudly alongside my premiership medal from three years beforehand. Yeah, it's definitely something. It's one of those things I'll never... Like, like my passport or your driver's license, I'll always know where it is. It's one of those possessions that I, um, I like to know I have, although I never really share that I've got it. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. So it's a, a proud little moment, but and it, it, the the um, yeah the proud part also comes from the fact that 2016 was probably my last real year of senior footy as well, and um, I was the vice captain of the team still, and um, it was after that season really that my shoulders gave gave way, and I didn't really play senior footy much after that. So it was kind of the the, the last, last major last major award I won, and one of the last you know. Um, strong, dominant games that I played. So it's pretty memorable, yeah. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, it is absolutely my pleasure, Tim G. Um, Kaz, you you talked, that, or you told me that you uh, um, you had the privilege of umpiring on an Anzac Day. That's right. Because um, it's early on the season, um, we uh, get really, really excited about um, to add in Anzac Day. Um, as well um, makes it fantastic there's a, a, a lovely ceremony at the start and um, and um, it's just uh, fantastic to see um, everyone who's there for football to also 
you know, um, really sincerely and somberly um, remember the significance of that day as well. Um, so it, it is an honour to um, to umpire a game that day, and um, I think some of the players uh, uh, they they went to a little bit of extra effort to go and and thank the umpires at the end of the day, and that that, that actually that is one of the things that sticks in my mind about it. Um, you know, um, that I think they I think they took a lot of pride in playing on that day as well, to because the game was really dedicated to to the you know the people that um you know have uh, sacrificed their lives so so yeah that's a little bit about it i mean um yeah it was something in in mm. the community yeah nice and moz was your your experience similar to Kansas? yeah very similar all the i think there were two or three grounds at that venue and there were three or four men's teams all lined up on one side and then the three or four women's teams opposite them and then umpires and um, onlookers, everybody. Oh, it, it was really chilling. Did that uh, and you, you, you were playing? Well, that yeah, day. on a, mm. on a slightly a lighter note, I actually injured myself that day in the warm-up. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> and which felt very weak in comparison to what we were commemorating that day. I had limped on down to the ceremony after our game. Um, yeah. yeah, but I did. I played half. I played half the game, and then turned out I had a um, a corky. <laughs> um, I, I suppose my biggest experience with football and Anzac Day would be the Anzac Day game that I've attended many times mm-hmm. at the MCG, uh, which I think the AFL and Essendon and Collingwood do a, a magnificent job of of hosting, and they've created such a, a mm. big fixture there. Um, and it's just mm. when they do that ceremony at the start, and they have the the minute silence mm. is just so special that you've got a hundred thousand people. Yeah. When, um, yeah. Standing dead silent for a minute in respect. I always look across to my dad when, when we're there and he always, every year has the tears running down his face. So beautiful. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's done so well. And now, now with the addition of the, um, the Melbourne and Richmond game on Anzac Eve, that's, yeah, it's, They've done a really good job. Yeah, absolutely. It 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 adds to it and makes it yeah, and makes it uh makes it a really special thing. It was it's it was interesting. Obviously, we've just had uh, Anzac Day in lockdown, and how they they've managed to maintain that legacy and and still have the service at the MCG, even though no one was there, it was a really nice touch. I think and maintain that sort of connection that the that the game has. It, to you know our, our history yeah, I agree, with Charlie. the military, yeah. and when we look at all the, when we look at all the players who served and gave their life, um, it makes sense that mm-hmm. the AFL do that. Um, so we're lucky enough now to have a bit of a, an interview that um, Tim and I did with Jack Jones uh, two years ago. No, now. about a year ago. About a year ago, sorry. Year. Um, who unfortunately has passed away only quite recently. So we, especially on hearing that, we felt very lucky to have been able to have a really great chat with him um before that about not only his playing days but but his time fighting in in um papua new guinea um in world war ii uh he was very generous with his time and went into a lot of detail with with his answers and we hope you enjoy listening to this interview as much as we enjoyed speaking to him um what was the mood in melbourne like in in that era 
in it. Like, like when, when, football. The, when, no, when the war was on, was it? Oh, well, I wasn't there for, for three yeah, of No, but I suppose leading up to 42 before you left. Yeah, I oh, know. Well, only a kid growing up, you know. And uh, there wasn't too many uh, blokes around in those days. Yeah. There's oh, a lot of girls, but no, no, no blokes, you know. Because, uh, well, a lot, of the, a lot of the girls were working in... Yeah, yeah. In... Uh, on the farm, they sent them on the farms oh, and everything like that to, to get the food for us and that. There was no planes. The first ride I had was in a DC-3. Oh, yeah. We went from uh, Shaggy Ridge, where the airstrip was. That was a, a great big mountain and the Japs were dug in the hills. You couldn't walk up, but you had to walk around. Around it, really. And uh, we flew from there to Sador in a... In a DC three. Wow, that's. Fair. And when they bought the hangar at the, I was at the opening, stand next to a bloke that worked there. It was in an old uh, uh, aeroplane hangar. Yeah. And James Heard and Mark Thompson were sitting in the cockpit, and I said, I had the first ride the plane on, on a DC three. He said, Where were you? He, I said, I was in Sador, in New Guinea. He said, I worked in Sador. He wouldn't read about it. Huh. He was only about 50. Oh, yeah. So he was just... And this was uh, well after the war. He, oh, well. And, he, and we didn't watch much of the ceremony. We started talking about just what, what it was like. And, <laughs> and it was unbelievable. I said, he said to me, oh, I, I worked in Sador after the war finished. Yeah. And after the war... We had to wait four months for a ship. We didn't know how long. Yeah. So they, they got the bulldozer in and made a football ground. We, we, this was in Bougainville, is that right? Bougainville. Yeah. Yeah, not in New Guinea. It was not enough flat, flat ground in New Guinea. No, of course I'd not. I'd been in New Guinea for 10 months. Yeah. Then we came over for leave and then then we went went back to Bougainville. We, we were on there for, oh, well, I'll explain it in a minute, for 12 months. Yeah. At any rate... Uh, where was I at? Uh, so they, bull- they bulldozed the ground for yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, that's right, they made the ground. They got some grass roots somewhere, and it grew in about 10 days. The <laughs> heat grew humidity over there. Yeah. And uh, anyway, they played football, they played rugby, they had athletic carnivals. Yeah. And we were there four months. Yeah. Before we got a ship, because there was yeah, that wow. many all the way, yeah, all the course. islands around. They had to get everyone so on that. Mm. We had to just wait our turn. So we had blokes sitting on the edge of the water, you know, that some of them were married and they had kids and they wanted oh, yeah. to get home. Yeah. They're just sitting there. And the war finished on the 15th of August and I got home on the 12th of December. Wow. Four months less, three days less than four months. Yeah, that's amazing. And uh, uh, my mother walked up the street as, as she must have seen me turn the corner, got off the tram after going, coming from... Royal Park to go on leave for a bit of leave, and we did, we thought we'd finished, but we certainly wasn't. That's uh, from Bargain, uh, from New Kitty. Yeah. yeah. So we spent another twelve months on Bargainville after we had a, we went up the Atherton Tablelands. Yep. And did did jungle training again up there. Okay. And then all of a sudden they said, "Yeah, you're off." The boats arrived. We got where we, they wouldn't tell you where we're going. Yeah. Yeah. You never know. So, so you came back to Australia between New Guinea and going to Bougainville. Yeah. I, I, well, what happened? We were in New Guinea first. Yeah. Then we come over leave. Yeah. And I said we went up the Athens Tablelands. Yeah. And then, then 
ship we the ship came in and we didn't know where, until we were getting off onto the barges then to run up and hope we didn't get a, an invite from the Japanese when we got off the ship but there was yeah. nobody there at the time. Okay. And then uh, when I got home and spoke to my mother, she said there's three letters there from football clubs. I said, they'd be writing to me. <laughs> this is about two in the morning. Yeah. One from Williamstown, one from Brunswick, both from the association. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So scouts around then, that's why I'm telling you that. Yeah. yeah. And I got one from Essen. Wow. And the ceilings were here where my mother lived was as high as these one. Yeah. I would have reckoned I nearly went through the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> I still didn't think I'd get a game. Yeah. yeah. At any rate, uh, I went up there and uh, one of my mates I was at school with and went to the same school in Ashford Vale. And when the first practice match came up, he said, now, they, did, they wanted to interview me, and, that, and that they said, don't come up early, you'll, you'll play with all the rats and mice. <laughs> That's the blokes every year that go up there that got no chance to get yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm looking at me clock all morning. This is a true story, this one. Look at look, look. I've got to go, oh, no, I better wait, I better wait. I went up there, went up and trained with it, played in the game. Yeah. The paper came out on the Monday, a recruit, Jones Shines. Nice. I said, gee, how easy is this? <laughs> I, 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 did, I did play well anyway. Anyway, yeah. we tried, kept training, and next week I, I went up late and played. As they got all the other the blokes, are not going to get in the league yet. Yeah. We got yeah. rid of them. Got rid of them. And uh, I got the paper on the Monday morning. Jones shines again. <laughs> I got one kick. <laughs> <laughs> the bloke must have been at the pub down the Royal, down yeah. at Essen Junction, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I said, how long has this been going on? I said, you know. Anyway, I kept trying and got in the first side on the list. Yeah. Two of us out of a hundred blokes. Wow. And got on the list. Jeez. And then I played eight games. Then I contracted malaria, must have been, I didn't get up the islands. Oh, wow. got so you got it when you came home? Yeah, I, came I, out. Lost, I lost a stone in weight. Yes. And uh, I was back in two weeks, I went straight back into the side. And I, ne I never, I never played. Never played in the seconds? No. <laughs> yeah. No, I never. I read that, yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. 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 And... Uh, and that's where it went from. So if sorry, I, can I backtrack a little bit? Yeah. Where the three letters that you received from the clubs, how would they how would they scouted you? Like where well, where did that come from? My father was born in Williamstown. Yeah. I reckon there that's where that come from. So one of his mates or grew yeah. up with or something like that, or my cousins all lived in Williamstown and Footscray. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and uh, the Brunswick one probably the same thing. Yeah, yeah, cool. that's that same area. Yeah, yeah. And, and Essen, I never found out, yeah, yeah that's the go. first year, <laughs> I never found out who sent the, the letter to Essen. From Essen. I was at a, I was at a uh, players dinner and I was talking to Ray Watts that played with Essen in the 30s and he was in the in the armies in the air force, he won a DFC, and uh, we talked away there. And the other, uh, he said to me, "How did you come to get to Essen?" Yeah. And that, I told him the story that I just told yeah. you, you know. And I said, "I've never found out who sent the one from Essen." 
And the other bloke snatched him, that was Lester Begley. Yeah. He said to me, you know now, Jack? I said, what do you mean I know now? I sent the letter. Oh, there oh. you go. He was an ex-Essendon player. Yep. He was older than me, but he was in the army up there. And, and so he, he saw me playing the games. Yeah. In, in Bougainville, for those that was about thirty years after I came back. That's amazing. Yeah. So for all that time, you you never knew who sent it. No, no. And then just sitting there at dinner one night. Yeah, and Les Bagley was the bloke that uh, the wrote the letter. So he was over there in Bougainville with you. Yeah, saw you yeah, sent yeah. the letter to Essendon. So yeah, you, oh, you he, got, he, he was you got to get this I don't done. even know what he. I never met him over there, but Harold Lambert, who got in the Hall of Fame with us uh, last June. Uh, he uh, he was up there too, yeah. and he was mostly new kitty and I knew him, but I, he reckons we talked to one another over there. I can never remember him, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> but we're, we've been great mates ever since. He's still he's the eldest living player. Oh, okay. He's ninety seven on the sixteenth of May, I think it is. Harold Hammond, and he got it and. Uh, and the other one is Noel Allison, a chap that is a, it's funny thing, a little story. I used to call us the tweeters, Noel and myself. Yeah. Because my wife was born on the same day as Noel. We used to call oh, them wow. the tweeters. <laughs> I used to call them the tweeters. Nice. She's 93 and I'm 94. Yeah. And Noel, he's the other one there. So there's Harold, me, and Noel. They're the only three that are left yeah. out of when I played. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Obviously, World War Two broke out in '39. Was it there always that expectation that you would go? Well, '39. But what was I? I was uh, fifteen. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't go in until I, as soon as I was eighteen, I received a letter to go and report to the Royal Park where you had to get a medical. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And I went there. That was in 1942. So I started for 42, three years and five months I was in the army. Yeah. And, and I got out on about, luckily, about a month before the football season started that year. <laughs> like eight games before the, that's when I first got on the list that you were, and they said, you're in the side, they were what, they're at the dinner and they're going to, and they did a pre-season dinner, yep. season, and I've got to, and out the side, and the bloke said, and he said, you're in the side, Jack. And I said, oh, oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you take a football with you when you went to war? No, I never had a football. Yeah. No. That, the, they had, we never took one, but yeah. all we used to do when we were waiting to go up front, if the football was around, you play end to end, you know, yeah. kicking and marking, you yeah. know. Bit of jack in the pack type stuff. Because yeah. the funny thing, I was talking, I was up in the Tuga at the weekend, where, and Brereton came on the screen, and I said, We had a Brereton play with us. That was in, in the army, got killed actually. We lost 91 killed and 197 wounded. Yeah. But we had nowhere near the, the amount that some of the other battalions had, like a Coca Trail. Yeah. If I had been seven months or eight months older, Probably wouldn't be here there. Is that right? Yeah. Because the, those oh, guys they, they lost pretty much the whole battalion. Reinforcements had to go back up there all the time. Yeah. Just while I was not eligible to go. Yeah, yeah of course. And when, when you were 18, you got called up and it, you, you had a V number. Yep. So V 505 
545, I think, my wife from memory. And uh, so the whole battalion decided to get a VX with it. Then they could send you anywhere in the world. Is that right? That's something new, I suppose, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and mine was VX418416. And that was a, a V. New South Wales was NSW oh, okay, for them, but yep. Brisbane and everything like that. Yeah, Q, yeah, okay. Yeah. And were you able to um, keep uh, track of any, like, of what was going on at home in the footy when you were over there? Like, Yeah, you... well, well, I listened to the bloodbath. We listened to the bloodbath. Did you? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that was 45 when the 45. war Oh, you were still just sitting around. You, and you were in Bougainville at that stage? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had radio sets and that there. And uh, yeah, we played football. We played against some good players. I think there was three. One day I played down at Hawthorne, and a chap by the name of Jack Hester, he was 19th man, and he, he was coming out to his group. Yeah, he actually came over to, to me. I didn't see him. Yeah. And he only played about three games. And about... Well, ten years ago, I met a, another the captain of our battalion. He, he he wanted to see me, so we met at the Hawthorne uh, Hall of Fame. Yeah. You know the, where they put all the so, memories yeah. at. Yeah. Uh, out at Waverley. Yes, we were there. Our our, our our Hall of Fame bloke at the moment, Barbara had been gone by then, and. Uh, he drove me out there and the, and the captain of the team was there. Oh, that's amazing. Hadn't seen him since the war finished. Wow. Were there many um, guys that you fought with or were in um, Bougainville with who went did, also went on to play VFL? Yeah, well, there was one one player with Brunswick, my best mate. You heard of Danny Corcoran? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, he, it's unbelievable. Johnson was his name. Yeah. And he played. Then he played with North Melbourne for a little while, not very long. But he he was a, he he won all the sprint races on the Isles and that. Yeah. And uh, his his wife was named Max, and she died of a brain tumor uh, about three years ago now. Yeah. And Daddy, and we're, he knew that. Uh, well, Doug Johnson told him that that, that when I started playing with Essendon. That uh, we were together. He was one of my best mates, probably my second best mate. Yeah. Wow. He died at Demetria at the finish a few years ago. And then I went to Maxine's funeral, and uh, Danny used to give me tickets to get into the, the change room after the game and that. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Nice. A lot of history when you get to 94. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. You've got to just click your brain and. Um, <laughs> So you wore number twenty-four in honour of your battalion. Yep. Yep. Easy decision to make. Did you you choose that? Did you? No. Well, the uh, or the uh, the Blakeman battalion choose it. Oh, did they? They said you're one on Essen, so and so. I won't say what they said. I said if you get a game with Essen, because they thought I would. I well, I didn't. I didn't. And they said get number twenty-four. So twenty-four was vacant, luckily, and. That's amazing. And Noel Ellis and the other chap is still alive, like me, why sweet it's not, you know. Yeah. He said, oh, I, 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 I wouldn't, I, what do you do that for? I said, well, the bloke from the battalion asked me. I thought, oh, no, can only yeah. say yes or no. Yeah. I went up to Auburn, captain and coach. Yeah. Gave, he gave me number one. I said, no, 
24. Yeah. Because of other players in our battalion came from Wangaratta and Vanilla ah, okay. in the others of Murray League area. Yeah. So I wore number 24 up there. Amazing. Mm-hmm. And then, so yeah, all the boys would have loved that. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, so obviously there's the Anzac Day game that the Bombers are involved in. Yeah. And you have quite a bit to do. You often speak to the players. I take them, I like to meet them at the tribe for about the last 10 years, I suppose, now. What, what sort of stuff? Talking at the eternal flame. What sort of stuff do you say to them? Oh, I tell you a little bit about the war, but a lot. And Matty, Matthew and I, she only lived eight doors up the road up there. Yeah. For, you know, the Richmond bloke. And uh, he he, uh, he got it going. Yeah. And uh, I just, I used to go on the tour with him the last three or four years. I've just gone to the eternal flame. Yeah. And then after that, we'd go to the dinner. Or, or, well, they named me Jack Jones Academy yes. after me. Yes, yeah. yeah. And that's why I do it. And I take all the, one, the, the recruits, guys. not the blokes like Shield and those blokes, but, but the first Cockatoo that's come this year. Yeah. I'll probably take him in about, about five or six days before Anthony yeah. Daddy. We go to lunch at a cafe down the road yeah. and meet him. And I used to take all the uh, their mothers and fathers on mm-hmm. the tour. Yeah. It dropped out a few years ago, and I haven't done it. Yeah. Getting too old anyway, but, yeah. and I, I I love to see them play, you know, because you're in the academy. Yeah, they stay in it for three years, and a chap by the name of Corker, I think it was from Geelong, used to coach them. Okay. You know, they have a they have a several coaching sessions. Yeah. To uh, manifest their, their to build this what they can do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. For three years they're in that. That's fantastic. Well, I the only. They don't mention them, but they've got two running now. I, I saw on the internet. The oh, really? The bloke with the name of Burns. I met him, I've only met him two or three times, and uh, he sent me a, a message while I was in the hospital from the, from the academy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it was good. Um, what kind of things do you say to the players on Anzac Day? Uh, what about the wall? Oh, the, just in general. Oh, I, I talk about the wall a bit, where I was and everything like that. And, uh, how young I was, and yeah. we were we were a very young battalion. Like yeah. all of us were only up to about twenty four, I reckon. So and, and then the older ones in our battalion were the, were, were the the blokes that were in the army before the war started. Yeah, yeah, regular army. Yep, and colonels and uh, captains, lieutenants, and everything like that. Yeah, and then I talk a little bit about Anzac Day. I said I. First to say, well, I never ever played in an Anzac Day because I think it's 25 years he's yeah. here. Yeah. And I've been well retired. <laughs> I, I said, but what do you want to do? I said, well, you go out the ground. I always remember Matthew Knight. And he was listening in. And I was talking to him before we got to the Eternal Flame. And, and I said, what, enjoy the day. Go out. When you go out on the ground, look around the ground and suck it all up and then guess which stop. And I heard him say to one of the blokes stand next to him, he's starting to coach the side now. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, um, obviously being part of it, it so much, you you must have an opinion. How, how did you feel when they first sort of came up with the idea of playing on Anzac Day? Did you... Oh, it's good. Well, I, I, I wasn't doing it then. No, yeah. no, but... And, uh, 
course, Shreddy, you know, he, he, he's the main one. Yeah. I told him he's a shocker coach. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I guess something that we, we sort of have skirted around a little bit, what is um, the, the time that you did spend in, especially New Guinea, what was it? What was it like? I mean, it's such a big question, but oh, it was, it was terrible, really. Yeah. It was, you know, you see the bloke alongside you getting blown up. I can remember one bloke. Uh, uh, we had a two-man tent, and he, we were in out on a patrol with six or seven other blokes. He came back, and they said, "You'll have to go out on another one. We're gonna." So they got five bits of wood and put yeah. it in. You pull out. Who's Short, got the shortest yeah, one? Yeah. yeah. Who went and uh, he went out? I never saw him again. He stood on a landmine. Yeah, but not only once too many anyway. Yeah, absolutely. The, the three, the three battalions in the brigade, fifty eighth, 59th, which was a an Essendon battalion actually. Is that right? And I can never understand why I never went to them. Yeah. Because they had about twenty more more than we had killed. And the 57, 60th, most of the blokes, apart from recruits coming down from the country and that, come from Preston. Okay. And that's where how we march every uh, and that they were first, 58 and then the 57, 60th. But every, everybody got into trouble at different times. Yes. It all depends where, where the colonels and the brigadiers sent you to, to go into. Yeah. And you never go in and stay. It, we never went in the stadium for two months at a time. No. You'd leapfrog one another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd, one runner, we'd be up the front, and the, the left hand side would be up the front, and then the other battalion on the right hand side, and they'd swap over all the time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, that's. Uh, I'm not boring you, Tamar. No, I know. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah, go on. Well, what else? Oh, no. I'm, it's, I, it's just, it's so interesting hearing that, Jack, because I. Totally different. I, off off topic. I um went and did. I went over to New Guinea only a couple of years ago and did the Kokoda myself. Kokoda, did you? Yeah, which I've was never done. It was a fascinating, f- phenomenal, unbelievable. Yeah. It was a bit harder. Jeez, but the, I was, but as I was doing, I'm thinking, you know, I was carrying my own pack and stuff. But I mean, the, I'm carrying half the weight you boys would have been cab- cab- yeah. carrying, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. It just puts it all into perspective. Have you been? Have you been back since the war? To, uh, to nah, New Guinea? Nah, nah. Nah. I've often I've, I've wanted to go there to, just for the cemetery, see the cemetery yeah, over there. in Moore Street. There, in, there's uh, uh, there, uh, 45 in, in uh, Lai, yep. and they're from Bougainville, uh, where we were in Bougainville, and 46 from are in the uh, Port Moresby Cemetery. Okay. Oh, okay, yeah, so they're split yeah. sort of yeah, yeah. evenly between. Yeah. I don't know why that is. It's yeah, just strange. Stuff. And I found out that I found, a, found a quite a few of the graves that I remember their names because yeah, there's 400 soldiers in there. Of course. You're not going to know everyone. Well, you're not all yeah. together, you know. There's four, four platoons, A, B, C, and D. Yeah. You know? Uh, there's probably about two hundred in the four. And there's a th- I think I've never got the right number. Uh, how many in the battalion? But then you've got the signals, the uh, mortars, the pioneers that helped us with all the getting over creeks and everything like that. And yeah, so that 
It's not only fighting men, but they're yeah. in it as well. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Everyone's all in there together. For Kenny Leone to play centre up for when he was sick at the dot, I used to take his place when he was Egypt. Uh, he, he he only went to Darwin. Yep. But they had lost a lot up there too. Yeah, yeah, they did, didn't like they? Just, the bombing just and, yeah. Darwin, but I went. Yeah. But we, I had, what, two boat trips over and two back, and then that, that flight, the... Uh, <laughs> Do you watch much footy these days? Yeah, I've watched a lot of yeah. footy. Yeah, well, I'm going to the big dinner Anzac Day again. I'll, yeah. I'll get an invite to that. What have my sons has taken me? I, I, well, I don't think I'll be marching this year. Or, you know, I said that I was up at the Duke, I think I might have told you, the granddaughters. Yeah. Great yeah. granddaughters. And he said, I'll, I'll, I'll get you, I'll ride, drive you. Because after March is over, at the time we're at, yeah. it's two hours to wait before you even go to the dinner. Yeah. yeah. It, you know, I, I wanted, you know. It's a long but time. Right, the last nine years, the last two years I've gone in a, in a car yep. last year, the seven years before that I marched on my own. Wow. With about oh, 35 or so uh, siblings from... Yep. From all the ones of the dead, yeah, they're all the only one that marched. Oh, so you were the you're the only one. Yeah, in, in, who was still going from the twenty fourth. Two years the car, the last two. Yeah. Seven years before that, March. I just marched at the front. Yeah. I, I was a colonel. <laughs> I, was, I was only a lance corporal. <laughs> <laughs> you were taking charge. charge. I came the boss. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> no, I, and oh, you know, it's great talking to all the. The uh, children, grandchildren, yeah, from of course, of the, of the guys some of the that you served with, that were yeah, and that too, you know. It would be. Did you um? Did you ever get to the the dawn service as well, or one time? Went. One time, yeah. Yeah, I, I did. I honestly, I, I might be the only one that ever said it, but I don't know. You're not close enough. Mm. There's that many there. It is, and it's 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 overrun. Away, it's it's huge now. I, yeah, I, yeah. yeah. thirty thousand. Yeah, massive, yeah. massive. That's great, it, but I I think the march is a hundred percent better than what it was twenty five thirty yeah. years ago. Everybody calls that now. Well done, boys. And there's that many people, young people with with their babies in their pram and yeah. they're standing there clapping and that. Yeah, that's years nice. Years ago, always used to be so, solemn, you know. Yeah, yeah. whereas it's but it, it is solemn in one way. Yeah, but it's it, it's it's great in another. Yeah. Absolutely. You, know, you remember, it makes you remember what how lucky I am. Like Neil Kearney from Channel 7 interviewed me last year and Tony Jones from Nine. Oh, yeah. And I told both of them, I said, how lucky am I? I've got six kids, I'm married to start with, six kids, 11 grandkids and nine great-grandchildren at the moment. And I said, all those blokes that were killed, Never, never, never saw their mother and father again. Yeah. I just throw that in a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Because you you gotta and and, and I, the other thing I I said at one uh, at a dinner they often kept me up to talk interview. It was the nurses did a wonderful job. Yeah. Oh, unbelievable. Especially that they were there for four months with us. What they do? I don't know what they do. Yeah. There's no there's no shops. Yeah. Everything had been blown away, all the trees are... It's tricky, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. 
It often, yeah, the, the, the nurses often get forgotten, don't they? The yeah, well, I, I said that at one of the dinners. I can remember it clearly. And if I ever, if, if I got to do it this week, I'll do the same thing. Yeah. Always bring them into it somehow. Yeah. But they, they did a wonderful job, you know. True. It wasn't only the ones that were wounded, it was the sickness. Yeah, of course. Well, as you said, the malaria. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of our blokes had malaria. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, one time there, uh, Corcoran, yep. his, his, his father-in-law, we were trying, the chap they dropped a hundred uh, mortar bombs on us. And uh, yeah, first of all, it would go over the back of us. Yep. Then to the side, because they had the Japanese up the trees with binoculars. Yeah. Dropped a did or dropped thirty yards or whatever they say. Yeah. And right, left, right, and behind us. And I was standing there with uh, Doug Johnson. That's uh, Danny's father-in-law. And he, he one lob not far from us, you know. There's uh, four blokes in a in a trench. They were all killed, uh, concussion and that. And Doug got a. A great big mortar bomb, uh, like a 50 cent coin, about as big as that, in his back. And I got one about half as big as a small nail in my arm. But he went away and within a week he was back in action. Really? Within a week? Wow. Yeah. Well, I dug it out. Yep. Well, we were getting short of men then too. Yeah, so you force him to go. Well, my brother died of cancer up there. And uh, I said, I'll put it for compassionate leave. My mother told me three months, he had three months to live. And uh, when he died, uh, I said to the lieutenant, oh, can I, any chance of me get back to, my, to Melbourne? And my brother's dying in, within three months. And he said, I'll put it in, Jack, but I don't think you've got any hope at all because we're getting far. We, a patoot used to be about nine in it. And the last return I took out, that's the last call too, was three, three of us. And we, we, we got out of there quick as hell, they opened up on us. And then we went back and reported to the, to the, call, uh, the uh, terms and that. And they said, well, we'll all go, the whole return went back in the afternoon. And I said, don't send them up that track, because that's where we were. What did he do? He sent them up track and five of them got killed. Straight up the centre of them. He was only a young lieutenant too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he didn't have the experience. Yeah. Well, none of us did. No, no, that's it. Yeah, but uh, unfortunately, and he yelled out, what's going on up there? One of the boys yelled out, come up here, you so-and-so, and have a look yourself. <laughs> you know, but yeah. he would have been frightened. Everybody had a bit of scary in it. Yeah. But it was horrific, that's all I can say. Yeah. Well, there's not much... For eight, 19-year-olds and 20-year-olds. There's not much else you can... Re- there's no other way to put it, no. is Well, there? I was 21 in, in Bougainville. Yeah, so you came home and at That's three years after I got in. Yeah, wow. No, thank, no, thank you so much for, for the, your time. It's been fascinating. I've been looking forward to, to meeting you and having a chat. It's yeah. been a real pleasure.
Um, think about this question. What was life like in Melbourne and Geelong during the war? Ah, uh, well, it didn't. I didn't seem to worry me much uh, because uh, you're too busy when you had a bit of leave trying to get back from Melbourne to Geelong. You know, most times you you could get on the train. It didn't cost you nothing. You travelled everywhere. Yeah. Nothing, you know. So. And was yeah. that because you was a serviceman that it yeah, cost you nothing? Yeah. So as long <laughs> as you were in your uniform. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. usually, but you were always busy as kids. You always did things, and you weren't. You didn't ever hung around, really, did oh, you? Oh no, no. So you were fairly busy, and. Yeah. And so when you came back from the war, you didn't play football anymore. Or you didn't uh, play football, I played uh, probably. Uh, I had a couple of games with the seconds, but. With John, yeah, the malaria. Oh, of course, yeah. Because Dad would get malaria about every three months; it would reoccur every, and it took years to get out of the system. But gradually, the the time between each bout got longer. Yeah. But it would get it would get much. So he just couldn't. And uh, I dropped under under eleven stone. I was getting thinner and thinner and thinner. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I couldn't, I couldn't go to work because no one employed me. Because I'd, I'd get a job, and only be there four or five days, and I'd be home cook again. Yeah, yeah. That's tough. Uh, it's really, yeah, I was very lucky that I, that I got rid of it. Yeah, it took some time, but. Um, we were also lucky enough to speak to Alex Matheson, who is the oldest living Geelong Cats player, who played a few games for the Cats in 1944. Um, I was able to go out and chat to him in 2019 uh, about his involvement in the war and also about playing for Geelong. You might have also heard some extracts from that interview in our 1937 episode because he was at that grand final. Um, so sit back and enjoy our chat with Alex Matheson. With Don, Don, my uh, brother, I was he was fifth one ball in the fence. There was eleven boys and two girls in the family. Wow! Yeah, and uh, uh, there was five of us played football, but it was only one that one that uh, carried on. Yeah. Uh, uh, Les, he was a fourth one born. He played with Geelong Amateurs. Then there was Bill, he played junior football in the district league and Laurie played. Laurie, would, he should have made league football, he was a good player, small yeah. player, very good player. But uh, there were 11 boys and two girls, but one boy only lasted five weeks when he was born. Mm. Um, Francis, his name was. Yep. There was a boy, the eldest, then there was a girl, then there was, uh, I was the sixth one born. Yep. Don was the fifth one. He didn't play football, but he was tied up with football. He used to look after the junior team's injuries and that sort of thing. Okay. And then he became administrator and he's, he was uh, the president of district league for about 15 years, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So anyhow, the seven of us went to the war. Yeah. Four in the army and three in the air force, and we all come home. That's lucky. Uh, 
so uh, I didn't, uh, when I come home, about I was only home less than three weeks, I went down with malaria. Oh, really? I had malaria for about two years, that finished me football days, I'd go, I'd be in bed for about ten days out of the month. Freezing cold. Yeah. Perspiration coming out, and my spleen used to swell up. Yeah. Oh, Anyhow, I finished up, got rid of that, but I didn't play much football after that. I, I couldn't quite work this out. Were you in the war? Were you in the army first, and then you played football, or was it the other way around? No, no, I, uh, I was no, I'd played junior football before I went into the services, and. Uh, and this game we played, I wasn't in the service at the time. We, they picked a team in Geelong to play the army, and that was only football they seen to people. Yeah, and it was quite quite a good game. Yeah. Were you playing for Newtown? No, at the no. no. So no. you still weren't. You weren't no, playing. Oh no, I was you playing were, with Newtown. You yeah. were playing with Newtown, Newtown then. Chill, yeah. yeah, which Newtown Chilwell is a suburb, and, and they created yeah. their own. You know, they had their own little footy team. Yeah. 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 And so you were playing for them, and then you were you were conscripted. Yeah. Or you went you you That's joined right, up. I it? should say you weren't conscripted. You were joined up, and you went from there, and that was how you then went to Geelong. Yeah. So. And uh, <coughs> the ref wouldn't give me play leave to play on Saturday. Yeah. For Geelong. Yeah. Yeah. Unless I'd play, come back to Melbourne and played with the Ray on a Sunday against the Army in the night. Yeah. And that happened. That's, yeah. that's what he did. Wow. He used to play for Geelong on the Saturday and then, and then come back and play for the Ref on the Sunday. <laughs> when I was at Geelong, uh, they, they gave you a jumper and they gave you a nick, gave you socks, your boots. When you finished, they took them back. Yeah. Not like today. Yeah, no, not at all. And they used to play. You got three pound a week. Yeah. Thirty shillings for training. I used to train out of Footscray. I'd get a lead pass from the Melbourne Tech, and we were stationed in the old West Melbourne Tech, which is a William Andrews food school now in La Trobe Street. Yep. The three hundred of you used to march out La Trobe Street if it wasn't raining. Yeah. And march home again. So I was there for uh, three months. So. I would get three three pound a week, thirty shillings to train in two nights, and thirty shillings to play. Yeah. Um, so you only you played seven games for Geelong. For Geelong, yeah, seven yeah. games, yeah. And then from and then I was moved to Sydney. We were Sydney there for a few days in Townsville, and then I landed in Port Moresby, and I was there for fifteen and a half months. Did you take the football with you? I did. We played a. Uh, we played the army a few times at Port Moresby. Yeah. But uh, that ground we we made ourselves. We, yeah. It was all right. But when I moved to my dad, we played up there. Played a couple of games here. The ground was coral. Coral. <laughs> oh. So you wouldn't want to fall over. Yeah. No. no. What you, what were goalposts? <laughs> Trees. Yeah, there's no, no trouble getting goalposts, it was all right, yeah. Yeah, so um, we, did, we played a couple of games with my dad, but wasn't. And were you saying, Jody, that he, that Alex 
help to organise the teams or? Well, no, he organised the team to play in New Guinea. Oh, okay. So he got together the group of guys and there were various numbers and people and playing up there to try and keep them all going, weren't you? Yeah. So did you play with anybody, I can't remember this, but did you play with anybody up there that you knew? You didn't know any no. players at no. all? They were all just guys no. you, you got together. That's right, yeah. Right. How, what was the quality like? Was it good games? Oh, it was pretty good. The Moresby was pretty good. We had, had some great games with the army, the ref there. Yeah. Come around about even, I suppose. Who would win? Yeah. <laughs> Did Raf win or the army? Yeah. No, no, we, we, we were about equal, I'd say, you know. Yeah. Nice. But I moved around a few bit. I went from Port Moresby to Lai. I then lay there for a while, and then Finch Harbour, and then Madang, and Nad's Ab. The anchor in Yab was there when we were there. Yeah. So part of the RAAF, what what was your role with the RAAF, with the RAF? What was your role with the RAF? Oh, I was uh, a fitter, you know, looking after the vehicles and all that sort of stuff, you know. Yeah. I never got to the front line, thank God. Yeah, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you got had time to play football. Did you yes. keep an eye on the like the schools in the league? Were they? Wait, did you get notification, Dad, of uh, how the games were going back in Melbourne when you were? Oh up there? yeah, we we used to see, always got us the scores in it. Oh okay. Yeah. yeah. Nice. I never forget that I was in the New Guinea with the grand final between. The, South Melbourne and Carlton. The bloodbath. <laughs> Did you listen to it? Oh, they had a bloke playing for South Melbourne, Jack Williams, his name. Oh, he could play a bit of rat pad. Yeah. <laughs> he, he jumped the fence and, and the belt of spectators. Yeah. That's the, reason, that's the reason it's called the bloodbath. A lot, a lot of players were suspended. Oh, I didn't know about that one. <laughs> Um, what do you think of the Anzac Day game? The, the Anzac Day game that Essendon and Carlton uh, Well, I reckon they did the wrong thing. It shouldn't be just the two teams, same team. They should be, they should go on a rotation basis. Yeah. Because all those teams had players that went to the... Oh, know, I reckon they most unfair, that is. Yeah. That's a good idea, but uh, I don't agree with it. the same team playing every year. Yeah. I think it should be on a rotation, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's it's a nice respectful way to honour people like you who served. Do you feel it's Oh, well, I, I think it is. You know, and uh, the people have gone. There's not, not many... There was, oh, I forget how many players that joined the services during the war in my era. Mm. Yeah. There's not not many left now. No. Dear. During the war, that ground wasn't used. The Yanks had part of it, but they weren't allowed to go on the ground, and the RAF had, had their number one recruiting depot there. And uh, when I joined the RAF, I slip in that old sudden stand and a palliasse. No, no, no stretcher in it with straw in a, 
Two nights. On the concrete tiers. In the MCG. <laughs> In the MCG. Yes. But no one was allowed to use the centre ground. No. You no. only stayed out, right. Yeah, no, no, okay. no. No, they weren't allowed to use the ground. Fascinating. And you played at Cardinia Park with John? Yeah. Did you? Did you and, play? And, and he, uh, a few games. Yes, I did. I'm just trying to think of the game we played, yeah. Uh, I've got a list here somewhere. I played at I played at I've got the teams he played somewhere. Uh, Tarleton? Tarleton, uh, uh, Wendy Hill's terrible ground. The only good thing about it was getting the first kick and kicking the goal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because Cardinia Park was, was it, I think Geelong only moved well, there in 41. Well, Cardinia Park was, when, when I was growing up, they used to have a speedway there, motorbikes. Okay. And then, uh, they got rid of that. Then they had a an asphalt track there where the country fire brigades used to have their demonstration. It was a, an asphalt track, uh, and they had these uh, hose reels. They used to have the and run with that reel and hose. And they had the, the uh, where they used to up the ladders, whatever. Yeah, they used that for years before Geelong. Which went from Scarrowville, yeah. And then, so they moved in 41 yeah. to Cardinia, so 44 was only their second season, yeah. which was your first season. Yeah. Um, Alex, thank you so much for talking to us as well. That's I really appreciate right. it. Well, Charlie, that brings us to the end of our World War Two. Uh, special, yeah, our trilogy of of episodes. Yeah, it's been it's been great. It has been fantastic. Um, I hope uh, everyone listening at home has has felt what we feel in doing this. In in um, that it's such a important part of Australia's history, but as always, sport is so intermingled with our history in general, and Absolutely. and bringing these two things together just shows um, how important a role sport has always played in, in what we do, and, and it was important during this time as well. So there were so many stories that we wanted to tell and, and get through, and that's why we... we expanded out to three episodes yeah. um, I'm going to put a link in our, on our website to all a lot of the resources we have used because there's there's a lot out there especially when you start digging that's it and there's so much more that um we wish we could have put in that we just weren't able to yeah um uh, we hope you know during this time when we're all recording from lots of different places that it doesn't feel too sort of patched together uh but there was a lot a lot of time and effort put into um uh getting this all together especially from you tim i've got to say yes um so i guess the the only place to leave it uh from here is we'd, we'd love to finish uh just with a bit of a last post and and in that time uh, paying our respects to the vfl players who uh gave the ultimate sacrifice yeah. during world war Two. um so please stick around and listen uh to that and uh, we look forward to uh, speaking to you more in the future about you know the after the war and, and the seasons that come on indeed
Uh, from Carlton, Wilfred George Atkinson, James Bell Knight, Norman Stanley Lebrun, James William Park, Griffith Henry Thompson. From Collingwood, Norman Lebrun, Norman Oliver. From Essendon, Godfrey Golden, Leonard Johnson, Jack Keddy, Norman Lebrun. George Regan and Archibald Roberts. Uh, some Fitzroy players uh, during the Second World War unfortunately lost their lives. Thomas Joseph Corrigan. Frederick John Heinz. Percy Edward Roberts. From Footscray, William Downey and John Zimmerman. And from Geelong, Reginald Clyde Helmer, James Bell Knight, Ralph Charles Lancaster, John Thomas Lynch. Uh, from Hawthorne, John Montague Drake, Alfred Roughton Giblet, Lyle Bruce Hone, James Alexander Nash, Richard Michael Peary, John Frederick Price, Leonard Thomas, Jeffrey Maxwell Wheeler, Leo... Young, Harold Walter Zucker. From Melbourne, Sydney Anderson, Ernest Atkins, Harold Ball, Ronald Barassi, Patrick Laurie Brady, Arthur Ellis, Reginald Helmer, Crawford Mollison, George Ted Regan. Beresford Riley, Archibald Roberts, Keith William Bluey Truscott, and Percival Wood. And now we pay our respects to the North Melbourne players who lost their lives during the Second World War. George Lewis Brock, Alfred Goonan, Leonard Albert Johnson, Albert Otto Peters, Beresford Stanley Riley, Morris William Shapir, Leonard Thomas. From Richmond, William Nicholas Cosgrove, William Henry Garvey. From South Melbourne, Geoffrey James Grieve, Gordon Ross Hamilton, Alfred William Hedge, Norman Stanley Lebrun, Alan Loudon Pearsall, Gordon Harold Sawley, John Thomas Shelton, Leonard Angus Smith, Leonard Thomas, and John Samuel Wade. And from Richmond, William Nicholas Pax Cosgrove and William Henry Garvey. From St Kilda. Alfred Bell, William Compte, William Downey, Robert Flegg, Ross Hudson, Stuart King, Wallace Mills, Beresford Riley, and John Shelton. From University, James Kenneth McLeod.
find out more about the Kick to Kick team and the sources we use, visit our website, www.kicktokickpodcast.com. You can contact us via email at kicktokickpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram under at kicktokickpod. Thanks so much for listening.